Thank you for joining us for a message from the Christian Fellowship Church of Kandu, North Dakota. Please visit our website for more information about our church at kanducfc.com. All right. So last week, friends, in chapter 2, Paul addressed the pressures that the Colossian people were facing as Christians. The pressures were the competing ideas of Greek and Roman polytheism or the idea of worshiping multiple gods. And the other thing was this Jewish ceremonial laws that were found in the Torah. These two ideas were conflicting the Colossians as they were learning about Jesus and trying to follow him. But Paul argued against those things, showing them that Jesus, in, or in Jesus, they are and we are complete. We have all that we need through him, and there's nothing else that we need for salvation or for our spiritual lives here on earth, apart from what Jesus supplies us. We ended last Sunday by praying and asking God to reveal to us if we have believed some sort of human idea that has prevented us from following Jesus alone. We confess to Jesus that we have given our, some human ideas a place in our lives that they don't deserve to have. And then we ask for Jesus' forgiveness and pray that the Holy Spirit would fill our lives more fully yet again. So, question I want to start with here. Hands up this morning. Has anyone heard at least one of these terms that is on the screen before you? Has anyone ever heard one of these terms before in your life? Okay, good. Just wanted to check. So all of these terms, Christian terms, are, they refer to how you and I can live now as a result of our faith being placed in Jesus alone. We're going to study chapter 3 today, or the beginning of chapter 3. And from the beginning of chapter 3 into the beginning of chapter 4, Paul explains to the Colossians and to us what life should look like when we are free from following religious laws and rules and we're allowed to live as reflections of Jesus himself. That's what these terms are trying to communicate to us. As believers, we live to follow Jesus, to reveal Jesus to the world, to reflect his character in our own lives. The, the sections that we're going to look at this week and next week are some of my absolute favorites of the New Testament. They're practical, they're straightforward, they're uncomplicated, and they're instructional. Yet at the same time, if we read them with the right perspective, they aren't just a set of, or another set of rules for us to follow, but it's like we're reading about a whole new life that is available to us now that we have a relationship with Jesus. So my encouragement to you as we begin today would be to take in this encouragement from Paul by pretending that you're a brand new believer or like you've met Jesus again for the very first time. So I say this for two reasons. First of all, sometimes as Christians who've been following Jesus for a while, we can get stuck in a bit of a rut. We've seen a lot or we've done a lot and we're not sure where to go in our faith with Jesus next. We're not sure what to focus on or what to do. And this passage, if we read it with just a brand new set of eyes, it can breathe new life into a Christian existence that maybe has become a little bit stale. The second reason I say that we should look at this passage as pretending that we're new believers all over again is, for most believers, when they first come to Jesus, there's joy and eagerness in them. They have this hunger to learn about and experience this new life with Jesus that they've just discovered. And if we're hungry in our hearts and eager to experience the new life that Jesus offers us, that will serve us well as we learn together today. So, 
Are we ready? Brand new believers? Okay, sounds good. Let's dive in here to Colossians 3, verse 1. Since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. So this first verse links what Paul has been saying so far to what he's about to say. It's like Paul is saying, I've told you clearly that Christ gave his life for you so that you could have a new life with him. As a result of that work of Jesus in your life, here's what you need to do. So it's kind of like you've made this amazing decision. This is the way it's meant to work itself out in your life. The first instruction we're given is to set our sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. A lot of people read this and they think to themselves, oh, I need to live today looking forward to life in heaven where I'll be with Jesus forever. While that is a nice thought and it is a true thought that we can enjoy, that's not exactly what I think this verse is getting at. What are the realities of heaven anyway? The reality of heaven is that it's the place where Christ rules. There he is honored. There he is acknowledged perfectly as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In heaven, all of his ways are desired and followed. In heaven, Jesus is loved and adored. So why would those realities be important for us as Christians to think about here and now? Because in this new life that we have with Jesus, our outlook is meant to completely change. Even though we're still here on earth and our surroundings haven't changed, we're no longer living our lives based on the realities of this earth. The life, that's the life that we used to live, and that way that we used to live is over. So if that life that we lived before we knew Christ is over, surely our focus and our perspective is meant to change. Now we can live our lives based on the spiritual realities of heaven where the Lord Jesus is at God's right hand. He's the one who saved us and he's the one who our focus is meant to be on. I remember when I was in school growing up, my elementary years and even into like kind of my teenage years, I remember my parents telling me, Jeff, just because we aren't around doesn't mean that our rules don't apply to you. I don't know why they had to tell me that so often, but they did. What they meant was, when you aren't with us, you are still supposed to live the way we have taught you to live. When I was at school, when I was with my friends, when I was on the baseball field, when I was home alone and my parents were out, my parents weren't right there with me. But how they taught me to live was still meant to apply to my life as I was living it in that moment. I think that's the heart of Paul that we're getting at here. Yes, the Savior you have trusted in, Jesus, is up in heaven, but what he says and how he leads from heaven still applies to your life down here on earth. That's why Paul is focusing the Colossians on Jesus. Jesus is reigning in heaven. He is our compass for how to live our lives down here on earth, even though physically he's not with us, but spiritually he is. Paul expands on this idea in verse 2 when he says, Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. 
In verses 2 and 3, Paul is emphasizing that since we are Christians, the meaning and purpose of our lives isn't found here on earth or by following earthly pursuits. That would be now a contradiction to this new spiritual life that we have. But since we are believers in Jesus, our real lives, the real purpose that we have, it's found as we live for Jesus. This is the essence of the Christian life. After deciding to make Christ the Lord of our lives, we still live in the same place we've always lived here on earth. But now we live here focusing on God's heavenly ideas instead of human ideas that we have been living with until now. Paul's going to give us some practical examples of what it means to think about the things of heaven and not the things of earth in just a minute. But verse 4, before we get beyond this, verse 4 is especially interesting. It points to the future. This verse is saying that Jesus is our everything. And when he comes back to earth, we will share in his glory. Which is a crazy thought, like an enormous thought, hard to wrap our minds around. To me... I read this verse and I see it working both as an incentive and an inspiration for us. This verse incentivizes us or motivates us because it dangles the carrot of sharing in Jesus' glory in front of us. That's a good thought. Yeah, we want glory. That's a, human, that's a human desire, but I think it's one that God gives us. And he allows us to desire good glory instead of selfish glory. When Christ returns to earth, it's going to be amazing. Passages like Revelation 1-7, Matthew 24-30, and Hebrews 9-28, just to name a few, talk about the greatness of Jesus' return to earth. Knowing that Jesus is going to, or knowing that Jesus' return is going to happen, and it is going to be glorious, gives us incentive to live today with our hearts and minds focused on Jesus, so that we don't miss out on partaking in his glory. Paul says Christ is our life. He's not just a piece of who we are. He's not even just a majority of our life, but he is our everything. He is our life. Without life founded on Jesus, we have no hope of eternal life. So since that's the case, living for him today, focused on him and turning our backs on the way that we used to live before we knew Jesus, it will certainly set us up well for his return. Sharing in Jesus' glory on the day will be incredible. Jesus will have all eyes on him, yet he will be standing right beside us. So this idea of sharing in Christ's glory kind of reminds me of, of something that I've seen at Winnipeg Jets games. When Karen and I were still living in Winnipeg, we would get to go to these things. This is a bad illustration, but, you know, sometimes even bad illustrations, you can make the point. When the Jets would skate out onto the ice, every home game, they would have a young hockey player kid who would be chosen to skate onto the ice with them and then stand on the, on the blue line with the players for the national anthem. All the fans in the building were there to see the Jets play. The Jets got all the glory. But for that moment, that kid got to share in the glory that the Jets had as he stood with them or she stood with them on the ice. The difference for us is this. We'll share in God's glory, not just for a moment, not just for the length of O Canada or the Star Spangled Banner, but forever. That's what we get. Not because we've earned it, but because we've been chosen and we've been accepted by the king to stand with him. We don't get to experience this just for a little bit. It's going to be an eternal 
amazing thing that's so hard to describe and even fathom right now, yet it will be ours for sure. So what incentive we have to be mindful of Jesus while we still live here on earth? I also said that this verse inspires us. To be inspired means to be to have it like excitement sparked in us or to be stimulated on some level. The idea of Jesus coming back for me so that I can fully share in his never-ending glory, it excites me. Does it excite you to, to know that Jesus is coming back for you, that you can share in his glory? Yes. Okay, good. That's good. We should all be like beside ourselves in joy and excitement, knowing I don't even fully get this, but I know what's going to happen, and that's amazing, right? I'm inspired now, or I'm spiritually stimulated to get busy living a life that Jesus would want to be associated with, that he would want to stand beside, he would want to share his glory with, not because he's begrudging it, or because he said, well, I made the promise, I guess I have to come through on it, but because he says, oh no, I love the way my people at Christian Fellowship Church have lived their lives. Of course, come stand with me. Yes, share in my glory. I want you to have everything that I have because I approve of the way that you lived your life here, waiting for me to return. See, like that disposition, that sort of inspiration is what we should be getting from this verse. So yes, the idea of sharing in God's glory on, on, the, on the day that he returns, it is incentivizing and it's also inspiring. Two ideas that should change our lives here and now. I think Paul hopes that his readers are captivated by this thought. Just like I hope that we are captivated and in awe of the thought of Christ's return, him coming back for us so that we can share in his glory. I know that thinking about this gets me fired up. I have incentive and inspiration all over again for this life. And I think this is why we get together. We get fired up. We get excited. We get motivated by what Christ's promises are for us so that we go Monday through Saturday and we live it out. Say, God, everything's for your glory. And I know I'm going to get it later, but I'm living for it right now. Now here's where Paul gets really practical. He's inspired us and, and now he begins to instruct us in verse 5. So, in light of everything that we've just said, put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. One of my favorite Christian rock bands, Petra, has a song called Killing My Old Man. I know it's not about murder or his dad, okay? But Killing My Old Man, the words go like this. I think you're going to understand what this says. They say, I think it's gone far enough. I can't take it anymore. I've got to even up the score before he sweeps me off the floor. I've really got to find a way of taking care of him for good. I know he'd kill me if he could, so I'll nail him to the wood. And then the chorus goes, Killing My Old Man. You may not understand, he's a terrible man, got to make a stand and kill the old man. So this song is exactly about what Paul is explaining to us here in verse 5. Putting to death or killing the sinful version of ourselves that we used to be. Killing the, the, the person and the disposition and the heart mentality that we had before we met Jesus. It's not about killing in the flesh, but it's about putting to death the spirit within us that was rebellious against Jesus Christ. So if we're going to embrace our new lives with Jesus, that means that we have to reject 
or put to death the heart and the attitude that we had before we surrendered to Jesus. So Paul lists some sin issues that are common to all of us. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. Like all sins, the ones that Paul lists here are selfish in nature. A person who is sexually immoral is someone who pursues sexual pleasure for their own gratification without any other concern about any other thing or person. The bounds of marriage aren't respected by people who have sexual immoral desires. The bound, or, um, impurity is, is an, anything that is immorally or is morally unclean and of no positive value. Lust is the desire for what is immoral, especially of a sexual nature. Evil desires are just that. The desire for not the things that are good, but the things that are evil. Greed is the desire to have more than one person should ever have. These are the attitudes that need to die in us so that there's room for the new life of Jesus Christ to rule in our hearts. Verse 6. Because of these sins, those things that we just listed in the previous verse, the anger of God is coming. So this is an interesting contrast when we compare it to verse 4. Verse 4 was all about sharing in Christ's glory when he comes again. But verse 6 is about the coming of God's anger. God is perfectly fair. We have to acknowledge that and actually praise him that he is perfectly fair. There will be a reward for those who honor God with their lives here on earth. We can be sure of that. But we can also be sure that there will be a punishment for those who continually and willingly sin without remorse or repentance in the ways that are listed in verse 5. A couple other places in scripture talk about this idea of Christ coming back and that there will be judgment or wrath or punishment. And this isn't something that we need to fear if we've given our lives to Jesus. But this is a side of Jesus that we can sometimes minimize because we just like to focus on love and grace and mercy, which are very true. But so is the opposite side of the coin, the, the judgment, the fairness, and the justice of God. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says, For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. And Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So yes, in the future, when Christ comes again, people will stand before God to be judged for their good or evil that they have allowed in their life. But even presently, as it says in Romans 1.8, God is aware of evil. And his wrath is being revealed today against people who persist in wickedness. This is the fairness and the justice of God. He doesn't let people who have evil intentions get away with it. There is a punishment coming, and that's a good God. When, you, when your brother or sister growing up, when they did something, and you know it broke the rules in your home, there was a part of you that said, I hope they get caught, and I hope mom and dad punish them. Not because you hated them, but you wanted justice to be served. You wanted fairness, right? I was the same way. And we also, if we have hearts that reflect Christ, we want people to be rewarded for when they live a good life, when they honor God and they seek to serve him and, and, and praise his name and bring him glory, right? We want both things to have the results that they deserve. And that's not evil, that's not wicked, that's not harsh. That's just the desire for justice that is within us that only God can meet perfectly. 
We try to meet these things sometimes in our own ways, like revenge, right? That's not justice. Or when we say we're going to favor someone, that's not a reward. That's just favoritism. That's us in an unequal way giving more attention to someone than than they deserve. But when we allow God in his fairness and justice to judge and reward as he sees fit, it's actually going to be a pleasant and beautiful thing. Verse 7. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world. Paul keeps coming back to this point in this thought, the difference between a life lived as part of this world and a new life with Christ. There is clearly a difference. You can't just remain the same yet say that you're following Jesus. There will be a change, and the Bible not only asks for it, but that it also testifies to ourselves when we feel a difference in our hearts, when we desire different things. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in us saying, see, you're following Jesus now. The life that you used to live, we're going to slowly work on changing that out for this better and superior life. Verse 8. But now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. So in verse 5, we were told to put to death earthly things that are lurking in us. Now Paul says, get rid of certain sinful attitudes and actions. Paul is telling us to reject and abandon some parts of who we used to be. Attitudes which fed into anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, dirty language, and lying. Do you notice a common theme in these six evils that Paul mentions here? If a Christian were to persist in any of these things, they would certainly create disunity in the church between them and their brothers and sisters in Christ. None of these things, none of these six attitudes are profitable or good or constructive when it comes to maintaining Christian relationships and unity in the church. All the sins back in verse 5 that Paul previously listed were sexual offenses that also have no place in Christian relationships. In the family of God, there is meant to be order and unity. Sin creates disorder and disunity. This is the very simple point that Paul's making. This is why Paul is so adamant about dealing with these things head on, telling us to strip off our sinful nature, the disposition that we had when we were rebellious against God. Paul knows that if the old sinful nature remains, it can ruin the church and cause people to stray from God, which would be disastrous if we welcome people into CFC and here is the place where they learn to live rebellious from Christ. That would be brutal, right? So this is why the focus is on, hey, in this new life, this is the way it's supposed to look. We, we shed these things, okay? We get rid of these things, and then we put on, as we're going to talk about next week, certain practices and heart attitudes that Paul says are important. Now the tone of this portion of Paul's letter changes slightly. So far, Paul has been focused on two things. He's been setting our focus on Jesus and helping us to welcome heaven's perspective into our Christian lives. And he's also spent some time admonishing us, warning and advising us to stay away from certain sin issues. But now comes a positive instruction. Verse 10, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. Oh man. I love this verse so much. This is, this is one of my highlights from this whole book. So we just heard strip off the old sinful nature and all the wickedness that goes along with it. We are meant to replace it 
with the new nature that we have in Jesus Christ. Putting on this new nature happens as we are renewed. So to be renewed means to be changed for the better, enhanced or improved, as it were, in our hearts. But how does this happen? How does renewal take place? If it's such a good thing, we got to figure this out. Is it a matter of our own willpower and discipline that enables us to move away from the old sinful nature that we used to be stuck in and then enter into that new life with Jesus? Is it through Christian accountability that we are renewed? Is it through rituals and traditions that this renewal takes place in our heart? Paul explained how renewal works back in verse 10. So we still have this on the screen here. It says, as we know our creator, Jesus, and become like him, that is how we are renewed. So now don't read this and begin to think, okay, so I need to learn as many facts as I can about Jesus, and then I will be renewed. Paul didn't say to learn to know about your creator. He said to learn to know your creator. Knowing someone compared to just knowing things about them is completely different. When we know Jesus, it means that we are familiar with him. We understand what he cares about. And we begin to care about those same things. When we know Jesus, we are concerned about the things that he is concerned about. The things that cause him to say, Ooh, I don't know if this is a good thing. Our minds and hearts work in the same way. When we know Jesus, we begin to share the same goals and purposes that he has. Instead of still engaging in those old goals and purposes of the life that we used to have. When we know Jesus, we think about him all the time. Our heart is tender towards him. We learn to love what he loves. Naturally, when you know Jesus, not just know about Jesus, you will become like him. You will be a reflection or an imitation of who he is in his heart and his character. So in this way, that's how we're putting on the new nature. That's how we're being renewed. And friends, you know, I say this all the time, but I I really don't care if I sound like a broken record because I believe that these things are so important for us. We know Jesus. We become familiar with him. We know his heart. We learn how he thinks and feels and acts when we spend time with him. We spend time with Jesus by doing a few very simple things. We, We read the Bible. We ask Jesus for help in our prayer life. We ask him questions and advice and wisdom and we wait for him to answer us and speak into our lives. And we are a consistent part of his church. That's how we are familiar with Jesus. We allow him to infiltrate our lives in every moment. If we want to know Jesus so that we can be renewed, we have to spend time with him. There really is no other way. Last verse for today, verse 11. In this new life... It doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters. And he lives in all of us. As we turn our lives over to Jesus and embrace the new nature that he allows us to have, all of our previous differences that separated and divided us, they just kind of disappear. They become things that we're not concerned about anymore. Oh, you're from Leeds? Oh, I'm from Kandu, right? Like, it just doesn't matter anymore. 
You grew up in Kandu? Oh, I grew up in Canada. Like, that's weird. We're from different countries. Who cares? Your skin color doesn't matter. Your social background doesn't matter. Your income doesn't matter. The ethnic background, your cultural background, your family's traditions, none of those things matter because when we're being renewed and we have the heart of Christ, it brings this incredible unity where we stop seeing each other with earthly eyes and we see the truest form of ourselves through the spiritual eyes that Jesus allows us to have. Christ created one people for himself and we all get to be a part of it as we are renewed. Since this is what God desires, we see the urgency in making sure that we are good stewards of the relationships that we maintain here in church and good stewards of the new heart that Jesus has given us. The attitudes and actions that Paul listed today are an attack on the oneness and the unity that Jesus has designed us to experience in this new life with each other and also with him. So we want to give Jesus the last word in our heart again today. So I want to put on the screen... All the things that Paul had just mentioned in this chapter, the things that we're supposed to put to death or the things we're supposed to get rid of. And we're going to pray here and we're going to give Jesus the final word again, just like we did last week. We're going to ask Jesus a question and I just want you to to just sit quietly and and allow him to speak to you because I believe that he knows your heart better than you do, better than I do, better than your closest friend or family member does. We just want to ask Jesus to reveal to us maybe if there's something that we need to put to death or strip away because we haven't acknowledged it, we haven't identified it, or maybe we've just been hesitant to even deal with it. So the question here, if you can advance PowerPoint forward, just one slide, please. The question is going to be on the bottom of the screen. There it is. Jesus, is there an attitude or action in my life that I need to put to death or strip away? Very simple question. I would invite you to close your eyes to listen and hear what the Lord might say to you about this. Jesus is speaking to you and he's maybe showing you just one thing, maybe a couple things that he's helping you realize are not meant to be in your life. Maybe they're things that are listed on the screen. Maybe it was something else. Why don't you just acknowledge to God, you know what, Lord, you're right. And I don't want those things in my life, but only tell him that if that's true. also invite you to apologize because we want right relationship with God. He's given us so much. We're going to have a future share in his glory, but if we want to glorify him now, we got to say to things to him like, Jesus, I don't want to live this way anymore. In fact, I need your help. I need your forgiveness and I need your deliverance so that these attitudes and actions do not have a home in my life anymore. Just tell him something like that. Apologize and tell him that you don't want those things 
in your life. Worship team, if you want to make your way forward, there's one more thing here that I want to encourage everyone to pray for. Why don't you ask Jesus to keep that work of renewal going in your heart? Tell him that that's what you desire. Tell him that you're hungry for more and that you want him to change you more and more fully. You want to reflect his glory already. You want to be an image bearer of Christ who is imitating and reflecting who he is. Tell him those things. He will hear your prayer. Lord God, you hear the prayers of your people right now. You know the heart of every person in here. You know the things that they need to deal with, that I need to deal with. You speak to us and you want us to hear from you so that we're not crushed, so that we're not discouraged, but so that we're aware and that we can move closer to you. We can move in your direction. I pray, Father God, that as we pursue what it means to be more like you, that we would be reminded of this idea of renewal, that this will be something that we want each day of our life. We won't want to just kind of plateau and say, ah, good enough. Or, or I can just be a Christian by calling myself one. I don't have to always act like one. But God, I pray that you would change our minds about these things. You would cause us to hunger for the fullest degree of renewal that you have in mind for us. So that one day when you come back, when you come back riding on the clouds, when you come back to raise the believers who have died back to life and to catch us all up into the air that we might be with you forever so that on that day, your glory will be something that we don't feel bad for receiving, but it'll be the very thing we've been looking forward to our entire lives. Thank you, Jesus, that you share these things with us now by teaching us to live for you and that one day we will get to be fully joined to you with no barrier of sin, with no barrier of a, of a broken mind or heart, but we will be fully renewed as we stand with the glory of our God. Amen.